All right, well, my name is Brandon. I'm one of the pastors here at River City. It is good to be with you. Uh, looking forward to opening God's Word with you and studying that together. If you are new or visiting, especially just want to say welcome. Glad that you would join us. If there is anything that we can do to serve you or help you get connected to the community here at River City, uh, we would genuinely love to do that. And, and so come find me or Becky or somebody else who looks like they know what's going on. We'd love to just get to know you, help you get plugged in, invite you to a small group, mine is the best, uh, and we'd love to just have have you around, so uh, you're welcome in those communities. So, anyways, like I said, excited to continue walking our way through uh, the book of First Corinthians. We uh, at River City has been working our way chunk by chunk through that book over the course of the last, gosh, maybe six months or so by now. And and so uh, so, but if you've been gone or if you are here for the first time this morning, let me catch you back up briefly on where we're at. Set a little bit of the context before we dive into our section this morning. So, 1 Corinthians is a letter that's written by the Apostle Paul to a church in the ancient city of Corinth. And that was a city in uh, kind of the ancient Greek, Greco-Roman world. And it was located at, at such a spot that made it this incredibly important and influential port city. And so it was basically the kind of de facto hub for trade between Rome and the rest of the western part of the Mediterranean or eastern part of the Mediterranean. And and so Corinth was this incredibly important and wealthy port city in, the, in its day, but it was also interesting because it was a new city. Rome had, in fact, conquered the city of Corinth about, a, about 200 years prior to the writing of this letter, destroyed it, let it sit desolate and bare for about 100 years before they decided it was about time to resettle this important city with people who were loyal to Rome and excited about what Rome was doing. And so they sent mostly freed slaves and former army veterans to the city of Corinth to resettle it about a hundred years prior to the founding of, or to the writing of this letter. And so that context is important because what you have in the city of Corinth is a culture of people who are making a name for themselves, who are making a new identity for themselves, and, and who are building up their own reputations, and who are building up their, their own prowess and all that kind of stuff. So much so that, that one commentator writes that, that the ideal of the Corinthian culture was the record development of the individual. You see, the thing in Corinth that everyone cared the most about was climbing the social and economic ladders of the day or maintaining their places at the top. They wanted to be seen as important and influential and worthy of praise by all kinds of people. And so they were constantly doing whatever they could do to kind of climb the ladders or, or make sure that they were at the top of the ladders that they, that they wanted to be at. And tragically, what you see happening throughout the letter is that the church in Corinth, God's people in that city, were no exception. Instead of being transformed by the gospel, they just were being conformed to the image of the world around them. And then they, they cared about just the same things that their city cared about. And so what you see is that that's, that's actually at the, the root of pretty much every one of the problems that Paul has to address in this dysfunctional church is the fact that instead of wanting God's glory and the advancing of his kingdom, the thing they care most about is their own glory. The thing they want most is the advancing of their own kingdom and their own social status in the world. And it was causing all kinds of problems in this, in this young church. And we don't have time to recap all the issues that we've seen in the book so far that would take up all our time this morning. But what's important to understand is that our passage this week in, in the section that we're in in chapter 12 is, is actually a part of a larger section in chapters 11 through 14 where what the Apostle Paul is doing is he's addressing all of kind of the problems that this self-centeredness, this idolatry of self is causing specifically in the context of their worship gatherings. He's addressed this issue in all kinds of other ways 
enemies in the midst of their church, but in these chapters, he's specifically focusing on the problems that it was causing in the context of their gatherings together. And specifically in chapters 12 through 14, we see him focusing on the, the issue of spiritual gifts. And what should come as a surprise to nobody at this point is that the Corinthians were approaching spiritual gifts like they were all about them. And they were using them, especially the more visible or miraculous types of spiritual gifts, they were using them as ways to kind of advance their own social agenda and to be seen as impressive and to kind of climb the social ladders and elevate and promote themselves. And so what we see Paul doing in these chapters, he's, he's systematically undermining this, this self-centered approach that the Corinthians have to spiritual gifts. And one by one, we, what we, we're going to see him do is kind of just just pulling the blocks out of this foundation that they have, that they're approaching spiritual gifts as this self-centered kinds of thing. And what we're going to see him doing is teaching them not only that God empowers his people by his spirit for the good of the church as a whole, not for their own personal benefit, but even more so that the greatest gift of all, the thing to be most celebrated and most prized and most applauded and most revered is not miraculous or spectacular kinds of spiritual gifts, but is instead a humble and selfless love for God and love for others. That that's, that's the thing that is to be most prized and most valued and most revered. It's a love that builds up the community of Christ and points others towards Jesus, that that's what matters most. And so in, into a, the midst of a church and a world which values above everything being seen as impressive and as important, Paul is writing to this church and saying, you know what, uh, God's the one who's important, not you. And that's the focus. Last week we began looking at these chapters and we saw how the modern kind of conventional approach to spiritual gifts, seeing them as special God-given abilities that we just need to discover and then figure out how to use, that that, that perspective not only is, is new in the, in the scheme of church history, it started in about the 1970s, but, but really it's actually problematic because it leads us down very similar paths and issues that the Corinthian church was having. You see, we end up focusing more on ourselves and our own gifts and trying to figure out what's special about us and how we can serve and use whatever we think we have instead of focusing on God and on others that he's called us to serve. And so in contrast to the kind of special abilities approach, last week I kind of laid out for us what I think is a much more biblical approach to spiritual gifts, which sees them not as special God-given abilities, but rather instead as spirit-appointed and spirit-empowered opportunities to minister on God's behalf. And if you missed last week, I would really strongly encourage you, go online, find that sermon. You can find the audio or the video of that on our website at rivercitydbq.org. Or, and so, or if you were here last week and you have questions about that, I encourage you to come find me. I'd love to talk more with you about that. Um, but the big thing I was trying to get across last week was that when we approach spiritual gifts as spirit-appointed and spirit-empowered opportunities to minister on God's behalf, that really changes a lot. And most importantly, what it does is it takes our eyes off of us and again, refocuses them and reshifts our perspective so that it's focused again back on God and, and what he's doing. Instead of focusing on trying to figure out what our gifts are and how we can use the special things about us, Instead, we want to focus on God and asking him how he is calling us to make much of him and to serve the church. And, and what we want to do is trust that he's going to empower us to do whatever he calls us to do. 
And so really it frees us to make much of him and to serve one another. And so that leads us to our study this morning as we dig into the first part of chapter 12. What we're going to see Paul doing is he's going to begin to correct this wayward church's self-centered approach to spiritual gifts by refocusing their attention away from the gifts themselves and back on to the one who gives them in the first place. And so the big idea that Paul's trying to get across this morning is that spiritual gifts aren't about you. They're not about you. Right? They don't prove anything about you. They prove something about God. They, they aren't a result of anything that you have done. They're, they're a result of God's gracious and unmerited power at work in through you. And they are not a result because of you are impressive, but because God is. And so when we view spiritual gifts with the God-centered focus that Paul's going to remind us of this morning, instead of the self-centeredness we're prone to, what's going to happen is that, one, we're going to be incredibly impressed with God. We're going to be full of awe and wonder at all the ways he decides to work and make much of himself. But secondly, we're going to be able to actually use the gifts that he's intent for the purpose he's always intended, which is to build up the body of Christ, the church, and not ourselves. And so to that end, let's pray. We'll dive into God's word as we study this morning. Jesus, thanks for our time together. It's such a joy to get to open your word uh, together this morning. And as we do every week, we just want to come humbly, Jesus, and say we really need you. We need your spirit to empower our time together so that, that we might not just, just read from your word, but that it might sink deeply into our hearts. And so help us by your grace to, to willingly, gladly put ourselves under the good authority of your word. And, and so, God, we ask humbly, would you correct us where we need correcting? And would you encourage us where we need encouraging? And would you shape us so that we look more like your son, Jesus? God, as we gather together, we, we want to be a people who exist for you and not for ourselves. And so as we study, help us towards that end. We need you, God. We cannot do it on our, on our own. And so, uh, God, for our good and for your great glory, would you, would you meet us in our study this morning, we pray. Amen. All right, well, we are uh, again this morning in 1 Corinthians chapter 12. Verses 1 through 11. We kind of just read verse 1 last week and focused on that. We're going to do the whole section this morning. So again, 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verses 1 through 11. Now about the gifts of the Spirit, brothers and sisters, I do not want you to be uninformed. For you know that when you were pagans, somehow or other you were influenced and led astray to mute idols. Therefore I want you to know that no one who is speaking by the Spirit of God says, Jesus be cursed, and no one can say Jesus is Lord except by the Holy Spirit. For there, for there are kinds of gifts, but the same Spirit distributes them. And there are different kinds of service, but the same Lord. And there are different kinds of working, but in all of them and in every one, it is the same God at work. Now to each one, the manifestation of the Spirit is given for the common good. To one there is given, the Spirit through the, uh, given through the Spirit a message of wisdom. To another, a message of knowledge by means of the same Spirit. To another, faith by the same Spirit. To another, gifts of healing by that one Spirit. To another, miraculous powers. To another, prophecy. To another, distinguishing between spirits. To another, speaking in different kinds of tongues. And to still another, the interpretation of tongues. And these are the work of one and the same Spirit. And he distributes them to each one just as he determines. All right, so like I said before this morning, what, what Paul's trying to do in these opening verses in chapter 12 is, he's, is for the Corinthians and for us, he's trying to shift our focus off of the spiritual gifts themselves and onto the one who gives them in the first place. You see, 
What's clear as you read the, Paul's letter to the Corinthians is that God was really powerfully at work in the midst of this community of believers. Chapter 1, Paul begins by thanking God for how he had enriched them in every way. That's verse 7, uh, with all kinds of speech and knowledge. He goes on in or verse 5 and verse 7 of chapter 1. He says that they don't lack any spiritual gift. And so God is incredibly powerfully at work in this community. The problem is that the Corinthians viewed the ways that God was at work in and through them as evidence that they were really spiritually mature and impressive. And, and the more miraculous or the more visible the giftings that God had given them, the more impressive or important they thought they were, right? And you see, and throughout the passage, Paul undermines this incorrect assumption in a couple of key ways. He's, he's trying to undermine this idea that they think that, that the giftings God has given them is some proof of their spiritual maturity or, or their spiritual standing or whatever it is. He's trying to undermine that. In verse 1, he, in the first way he does it in verse 3, he, he points out that spectacular and miraculous displays aren't the litmus test. That's not the thing that proves if you're godly. That's not the thing that proves that you are spiritually mature. Instead, what proves the spiritual maturity is a submission to Jesus as Lord. That's, that's what it is. Verse 3 says, I want you to know that no one who's speaking by the Spirit of God says, Jesus be cursed, and no one can say, Jesus is Lord, except by the Holy Spirit. Now, a lot of people, I think, think that what Paul's doing here is trying to teach the Corinthians how to discern uh, between different teachers or different spirits about what, what's really from God and what's not. But for a number of really good reasons that, uh, that D.A. Carson lays out in his commentary on these chapters, it's a, uh, it's a book called Showing the Spirit. I think that just doesn't really make the most sense. Instead, what I think Paul's trying to teach here is, is how to, who, has how to teach the Corinthians how to tell who has the Spirit of God at all in the first place. You see... Remember, the Corinthians think that the spectacular or miraculous things that they were able to do, that that was the evidence that they were really spiritually mature, that they were really spiritually impressive people. But I think Paul is saying here, and what he absolutely says elsewhere, is that the mark of a true Christian, the mark of a mature believer, someone filled with the Spirit of God, is not that they can do spectacular or miraculous things, but that with their words and with their lives, they proclaim that Jesus is Lord that he's king, that he is in fact God. One commentator puts it this way. He says, spectacular displays often attest the power of the spirit world. They do not in themselves attest the power of the Holy Spirit. You see, instead, the power and the presence of the Holy Spirit are evidenced by a life that is increasingly surrendered to Jesus as Lord. You see, we are tempted in all kinds of ways to, to think that the mark of spiritual maturity is, is all kinds of different things. For some of us, it's, it's biblical knowledge or theological acumen. For others, it's, it's the spectacular, miraculous things sometimes they see people doing. Or, or others, just be, you know, like maybe you think I'm impressive because I'm standing up here teaching the word, right? And God says, none of that stuff is the mark. That's not the test. That's not the, that's not the thing that matters. He says what really matters, the thing that shows that you are a truly spiritual person then is when you are increasingly characterized by a life that is submitted to Jesus as Lord. That's what maturity is. That's what it means to be spiritual, is to live a life under Jesus' kingship and his good authority. There are a whole lot of people that have a whole kind of lot of biblical knowledge whose lives are a hot mess of rebellion against Jesus. And there are a whole lot of people who can do a whole lot of interesting or impressive or spectacular things whose lives are not characterized by submission to Jesus as Lord. 
That's the test. Does your life reveal that Jesus is king? Are you submitted and surrendered to him? That's what matters. Not what spectacular or miraculous things you can do. People today still make that mistake. Some Christians believe that the, the way you tell who's really spiritual, who has the Holy Spirit and who doesn't is who can speak in tongues or not, right? And we'll talk more about tongues later, but, but besides the fact, the point of the whole passage is that Paul is saying that that's the stuff he's correcting. That's the stuff he's saying it's not the most important. But besides the fact that later on in verse 30, he specifically says that not everybody speaks in tongues, right? You see, we, we miss it. Sometimes we think it's the spectacular or the important or the impressive things, however we define that. That's the mark of spiritual maturity. That's the mark of really being spiritual. And Paul says, no. No, the real miracle is that Jesus is king in your heart and in your life. That's the spectacular transformation that is to be most valued and cherished. And so Paul's undermining what the Corinthians think their spiritual gifts say about their own spiritual status. And he instead roots the proof of their true spirituality in their submission to Jesus as Lord and as King. But that's, that's not all he's undermining. You see, the Corinthian believers were operating with the view that the more miraculous and visible spiritual gifts were more important. And so therefore, whoever exercised them was themselves more important in the context of the church, right? Again, everything in Corinth was about climbing the social ladder, right? And making sure you were higher on that ladder than somebody else was. And Paul is having absolutely none of that garbage, right? Verse 4, he says, there are different kinds of gifts, but the same spirit. There are, verse five, different kinds of service, but the same Lord. Verse six, different kinds of working, but the same God. Verse 11, all of these are the work of one and the same spirit, and he distributes them just as he determines. You see, in other words, Paul is saying no spiritual gift is any more important than any other one, and neither are you. Neither are you. You see, no spirit-appointed and spirit-empowered opportunity to minister on God's behalf is more important than any other because God is the one who is behind them all. He's the one who is appointing. He's the one who is empowering. And he's the one who is important. And so whatever he calls you to do by his spirit matters and is incredibly important because he called you to do it. And he's the one that matters. We'll see Paul flesh out the implications of this reality a lot more in the second half of chapter 12 next week when we read that. But for now, I just, I just want to be clear. It does not matter how ordinary or spectacular whatever opportunity to minister on his behalf that God appoints and empowers for you to, for you to do. It does not matter how ordinary or spectacular it is. They all matter. They are all crucially and critically important. And they are all equally dependent and empowered by God himself. And so don't think for a minute that what God has appointed and empowered for you to do by his spirit is any less or any more important than what he's appointed and empowered for anyone else to do. You see, God's, God's, our, our dependence on him should be this great equalizer among us as his people. I, as your pastor, I, just need to hear this. I am not more important than you. The things that God's asked me to do, the things he's called me to do, they are not more important than the ways he has called you to serve and minister in the context of this church. Because all of those things are appointed and distributed just by him. He's the one who decides. And we'll see next week he works it all together for his glory and for our good. See, the Corinthians, they were, they were professional snobs. 
right? What their culture did better than anything else was compare themselves to one another, right? And they're always looking around and looking at each other to figure out, am I better than you, right? Am I higher up the ladder than you are? And how can I get higher up the ladder on the year? We don't ever do anything like that, do we? We don't know anything about that. that. We are so much more mature than they were all those years ago, aren't we? No, we're not, right? We do the same things, right? Often we do the same things. And Paul, this morning, he says, that's a bunch of garbage. Screw that. God is the one who appoints. He's the one who empowers whatever he calls each and every one of his people to do. No gift, no spirit-empowered opportunity to minister matters more than anything else. Therefore, no one is more important than anyone else. See, in the church, kind of the, the ontological org chart in the church has two levels. It has God and everybody else. And that's all. That's all there is, right? And so he's the one who's important. And all of us, each and every one, are under his good authority. You see, and what that reality should create in our hearts is a sense of awe for God who empowers his people and a humble gratitude for however he chooses to call or empower you to minister on his behalf because he is the one who is impressive, not you. And he is the one who is important and not you. And he is the one who is powerful and not you. And yet he chooses to use us and to empower us to serve him and others in ways we could ne never do on our own. Not because of us, often actually in spite of us. The Corinthian church was a dumpster fire. That place was a hot mess. It was a church you would walk into and very quickly decide you wanted to walk out of, right? And yet God by his spirit is powerfully at work through them. That doesn't, that doesn't make a whole lot of sense to us, does it, right? We think, oh, when we have our stuff together, when we're really kind of, when we really are looking impressive spiritually on the outside, then that'll kind of, God'll, then God's ready to use us. Then he's ready to work in and midst the through, through of us. Paul says, no. Spiritual gifts are God's choice to work in amongst his people to make much of himself. And it doesn't reveal something about us. It reveals something about him. So that reality should humble us to the floor. And yet at the same time, it should fill us with such an incredible joy and a confidence and a sense of honor that God would empower and use us in the first place. See, not only does God empower us by his spirit to serve him and others, whatever ways he chooses to do it are just as unmerited and just as dependent on him. No matter how he asks you to do it, they are reliant on him. But just because all the gifts are equally important doesn't mean that everyone is appointed and empowered by God in the same ways. In verse, verses 7 through 10, Paul mentions nine different opportunities for ministry that God appoints and empowers for different people in the church to do on his behalf. And he adds a few more at the end of the chapter. And if you look in places like Ephesians 4 or Romans chapter 12, there's another set of lists that is kind of semi-overlapping with these where Paul gives a bunch of different examples about spiritual gifts and I think a lot of times when preachers get to these passages, what they try to do is try to just do the deep dive on all of the gifts and be like, all right, here's, here's exactly how all of these work and here's exactly what's going on and here's how you can tell which ones you have and all that kind of stuff. And they try to tell all kinds of stories and give all kinds of examples about trying to help you figure out which ones you have. And like we talked about last week, that's one, that's not how I think we should be approaching spiritual gifts anyways. But two, I think that's, that's actually kind of the opposite of what Paul's trying to do in this passage. See, again, he's trying to get them to take their eyes off of the gifts 
and put their eyes back on God. That's why after every single one in the list, right, he says, it's the Spirit who does it. It's the one Spirit who does it. It's the Spirit empowered by all this kind of stuff. And so in everyone, he's trying to do is level this playing field. And so I'm not going to do the deep dive on, uh, but what I want to do is give you just a little bit of a brief overview of some of the incredible ways that God's Spirit appoints and empowers His people to minister. Because like Paul says in verse 1, I don't want you to be uninformed. I don't want you to just be ignorant about those things. But before we dive into any of that, I just want to be clear. The point that Paul is making is that God is the one who equally and sovereignly appoints and empowers all of them. And the point is that we should be impressed with Him not with anything else. That's the point. And so in verse 8, Paul says that the Spirit empowers messages of wisdom or knowledge. It's not really entirely clear how or if these are different things specifically, but the basic gist is that God empowers his people by his Spirit and gives people wisdom and understanding that they could not have apart from him. Often it's a message of wisdom and knowledge for someone else to encourage or correct or build up or, or, or discipline someone else. In verse 9, Paul as that the, there's a spirit-empowered kind of faith that God gives. And this is not saving faith, right? Every believer has that. Rather, this is a faith to, to kind of perform. It's like a faith that's connected with actions in otherwise crippling or, or uncertain situations. It's the kind of faith that Jesus would refer to, the kind of faith that can move mountains, right? A faith that causes us to take out, to walk out in action in faith and to follow God into what he's calling for us to do. Verse 9, Paul adds that the Spirit empowers gifts of healing. God, the creator and sustainer of all things, empowers his people to heal others in supernatural and miraculous ways. That is incredible. That God would do that by his power. Verse 10, which leads to verse 10 that Paul refers to as miraculous powers. Presumably, anybody getting healed miraculously would be, fall under the category of miraculous kinds of powers, you would think, right? But not all miracles are, are healings. And this include, as one commentator writes, things like exorcism or nature miracles or other kinds of displays of divine energy. Paul ends his list with some examples of spiritual gifts by, by talking about prophecy and tongues. And Aaron is actually going to do the deep dive on those as we, when we get to chapter 14 in a couple of weeks here. But the point is that God speaks to and through his people. Right? To encourage and to direct and to admonish and, and to correct his people. And he primarily does this through his word, which is our highest authority and is the thing against which we test any other thing that we have. But sometimes he does this in more overt and miraculous kinds of ways. Specifically, when Paul is referring to here about kind of uh, people speaking in tongues, there are a number of different ways the New Testament gives examples of that. Sometimes God empowers his people to speak a language that they do not know and have not learned so that someone else might be able to hear or respond to the gospel in their own language in a way that they wouldn't have otherwise been able to do that. We see that specifically an example of that in Acts chapter 2. Sometimes God as well empowers his people to speak in a heavenly or an angelic language, often with a message from him in some kind of way, like I said, to encourage or to correct or something like that. And sometimes God empowers his people to speak in a heavenly or angelic language as they pray or talk to him in private. Like I said earlier, since spectacular and miraculous displays don't necessarily come from God always, right? there is a spiritual world at, at, at play, God empowers as well his people to discern what is from him and what's not from him. 
Now, the list Paul gives here focuses pretty heavily on the more overtly miraculous kinds of spiritual gifts, probably because those were the ones that the Corinthians were super infatuated by, right? But elsewhere, he gives all kinds of other examples, including gifts like helping, guidance, administration, pastoring, shepherding, teaching, all of which are equally reliant on and empowered by the Spirit of God. And the question that's often raised, especially with talking about the kinds of gifts that Paul lists here in, in, in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, is, is just this, does God still empower people by his Spirit in these ways today? Does God still do that? Does this stuff still happen, or was that just something that happened in the early church? And some people say yes, right? All the spiritual gifts are that are listed in the New Testament are still examples of the ways that God empowers his people. This would be referred to as a continuationist or charismatic kind of position. Like I mentioned, some Christians take that position a whole nother step further, right? Which is where not only do they think that all the spiritual gifts still exist, but that if you don't speak in tongues, then you don't really have the Holy Spirit at all. And that is highly problematic for a whole lot of reasons that we do not have time to get into this morning, right? Um, so some people say yes. Some people go way over the deep end and say yes, plus an asterisk and a whole bunch of other stuff that's not in the Bible, right? But, so some say yes, but others say no. Others say the miraculous gifts don't happen anymore. They would cite verses in 1 Corinthians chapter 13. We'll actually get to that in about two weeks where Paul says that one day tongues and knowledge and prophecy will all cease and they would say that that, that day when everything is going to cease, that that happened when the New Testament was completed and when the Bible was kind of put together because God's word is kind of the perfect revelation of God and so we don't need any of those other things anymore. And, and that's really the position that I grew up with. But I think as I've studied 1 Corinthians 13 and, and honestly just done ministry over the, over the years, I, I just think that that position doesn't really hold up exegetically or experientially. You see, in 1 Corinthians, the reason that Paul says in chapter 13, the reason he says that some of those things might cease is, is because the perfect or the complete will come. And I think it's pretty clear that he's talking about Jesus' return not like the canon of scripture in some esoteric kind of way. That just doesn't really make a lot of sense as you just exegetically approach the passage, right? And so when Jesus does come, when he ushers in his kingdom, then yeah, we're not going to need any of that stuff anymore because we're going to have him face to face, right? And so no, we won't need it. Additionally, I've just personally seen and experienced God empowering many of these miraculous kinds of things happening in ways that build up the church and that glorify Jesus, right? Now, I've also seen some crackpot wackadoos, right, who are like, who like make a mockery of the spiritual gifts of God and are using them in such a way to try to make much of themselves and to get honor and fame and money or whatever it is for themselves. And that is a, that is a hot pile of garbage right there, right? But I think what happened is more often people who hold to a cessationist position come to it out of a reactionary tone. Because they've seen the way it's been abused and they've seen the ways that people have used it for their own good and they've tried to just abuse those kinds of things. And it's oftentimes, I think, a reaction to problems um, rather than specifically coming out of Scripture itself. But I'll just say this. One of the things that you see in our passage this morning is that the Corinthians' way they were using spiritual gifts was everything but how it should get done, right? It was everything about the way that they were using their spiritual gifts was wrong. Basically everything. And yet what you see happening is that Paul doesn't tell them to stop doing it. 
He gives them instructions about how to use their gifts. We'll see that more in chapter 14, right? He encourages them. He reminds them that it's not about you, that's about Jesus. He gives them some guidelines for how to approach it and how to use it in their gathering so that, so that it might be all about Jesus as it was should, but he doesn't tell them to stop doing it. And I think that's the position that we would land on here at River City. We would kind of refer to ourselves as like, when it comes to spiritual gifts, as open but cautious, right? Uh, a pastor uh, that I remember listening to a while ago, he called it kind of charismatic with a seatbelt, right? And um, I, think that's a, I think that's a helpful way to kind of think about it, right? You see, we believe that, yes, all of the gifts that, the, that are listed in the New Testament are examples, indeed, of the way God has worked and does continue to work in and amongst his people. But we need to be careful about making sure that they are used in accordance with the limits and instructions that we see laid out clearly in God's word. Again, we'll see some of that in a couple of weeks in, in chapter 14. But most importantly, we want to make sure that they are used in ways that point to God and not to us. And again, as chapter, verse 7 says that they're, that they're intended, these manifestations of the Spirit are intended to build up the body for the common good. And the problem happens so often is people use them for their own good. And that is a problem, right? And so we're not actively seeking out some type of miraculous demonstration here, but we are open to however God decides he wants to work. And so, for example, if you speak or pray in tongues, cool. Tell me about that. I'd, I would genuinely be, I'd love to hear more about that from your experience. But don't stand up on a Sunday in the middle of nothing and tell me you have a message from God, right? I will put the kibosh on that real quick, right? Not because uh, like I'm weirded out by it. I'm a little weirded out by that, right? But not primarily because of that. More so because that's out of line with the way that scripture instructs us to do it, right? But also because it would weird some other people out and would take the attention off of God and put it onto you, which is the very thing that Paul is repeatedly having to address in this body of believers, right? He wants all of our attention to be set on God, to be focused on him. All right, we're running out of time here, so let me, let me just wrap things up this morning. We'll try to land the plane together uh, as we close here. Again, what Paul is trying to do in these verses as he's setting up this discussion over the next couple of chapters is he's trying to get us to take our eyes off of spiritual giftings themselves and to put our eyes back on God, to set our attention on him, to be awed and impressed and amazed at, at the various ways that he empowers his people to build up the church and to glorify him, but also that, he, that we might be humbled by the fact that none of the things that God appoints or empowers for us to do say anything about our impressiveness or our maturity or any of it, but have everything to do with pointing out how great and incredible and powerful God is. Might that be our, might that be our perspective, church? Might we have the, the view that we want to see God at work and that when we do, however he decides to empower and appoint his people to work for him, that we would be equally amazed that he does it at all and that we would be equally honored by how he has invited us into it. What will happen is that that will lead you to use your gifts as he's appointed and empowered you for his glory and the good of his church. So the invitation, stop looking at yourself and again, set your eyes on Jesus and on the needs of the community around you. Ask him how he might be empowering you to meet the needs of others so that his church might be built up and so that he might be seen as beautiful and impressive and glorious. 
And so that's what we're doing every week when we take communion together. We're trying to refocus our eyes, reset our attention off of ourselves and back onto God. You see, we're shifting our focus off of ourselves back onto Jesus, remembering all he has done for us, not because we are impressive or worthy, but because he is. The bread and the juice, they remind us about his body and his blood, which were broken and shed for us so that we might be forgiven and cleansed and made right with God, but also that we might be filled with his spirit. First and foremost, so that we could live lives of worship and submission to him as Lord, but also so that we might be empowered to build his church and to glorify him and to show him as glorious and beautiful and wildly impressive. And so if you're here today and you haven't yet placed your faith in Jesus, I just want you to know I'm so glad that you're here. But communion's about remembering and celebrating by faith all that we have trusted for God to do on our behalf. It doesn't make us right with God. It doesn't change our status or our standing with him. It's a chance for us to remember him, to shift our attention and our focus, to remind ourselves of all that he has done for us. And so if you're here and you haven't placed your faith in Christ yet, like I said, I want you to know you're welcome. But I encourage you, hold off on taking communion this morning. Communion's about remembering and celebrating the faith that we put in Jesus for all that he's done for us, right? So communion might not be right for you this morning, but Jesus is. And this community of believers is. And I want you to know, like I said, you are so welcome here. And we'd love to help you explore more what it looks like to follow Jesus and to put your faith in him and what he's done for you. And so we'd love to do that. But if you have trusted Jesus and believe the gospel, then I'd encourage you during our time of worship, go back and take communion. You'll find a table on the, in the back on the left and on the right. And there's bread that you can dip in the juice as we remember as symbols of Jesus' body and blood broken and shed for us. There's also kind of a communion snack pack thing with a little peel top if you feel more comfortable doing that. Whatever way you feel led, we'd love to have you take communion with us if by faith you've put your trust in Jesus. And so as we worship, as we sing, I'd encourage you, as we remember the gospel together in song, I'd encourage you to talk with God. Ask him to help you to take your eyes off of yourself and instead to focus on him and how he's calling you to make much of him and to serve others. And ask him to show you how he's appointing and empowering for you to serve this church or to serve the church that you are a part of and to make much of him and ask him to help you to trust you that by his spirit, he's gonna empower you with whatever you need to do what he's called you to do. And also, encourage you, ask him to help you just to be amazed by him and all that he does and the fact that he would use rebellious and faulted and just blind and ignorant people all the time to make much of him, not because we're impressive, but because he is. Might that create in us, church, an attitude of joyful humility and just an excitement that God might be at work through us for his glory and for our good. Let's pray. Jesus, thanks for our time in your word this morning. Jesus, my, my heart is just simply what I think you, Paul, the Apostle Paul was trying to do. God, help us to take our eyes off of ourselves. God, we live in a world that just that calls out at every turn for us to focus on ourselves. And yet, Jesus, your word continues to call us, remind us not to focus on ourselves, but to focus on you. 
He'll stop looking inward and instead to look upward at you and outward at the community you've put us in. And so, God, by your spirit, might you empower us to be a people who, do, who, who doesn't, isn't focused on ourselves, but is focused on you and, and on the needs of the community around and, and the opportunities that you appoint for the gospel to go forward in our lives and in the lives of others. Might we be a church that is uh, deeply dependent on you, that is full of an awe and an amazement of you, and one that is radically humble and yet deeply confident that you, by your spirit, empower us for all that you've called us to. God, it's for our good and for your great glory we pray all this. Amen.